Uh, I'm Jen Ramos, and I'm the host of Jen Has Issues Podcast. Progress Texas is not afraid of being honest. The good, the bad, and the ugly, they are here to hold it all down for progressive values. It's Monday, September 18th, 2023, and this is the Progress Texas Daily Dispatch. Rapid response on the breaking news stories Texas progressives need to know. I'm Chris Mosier. Ken Paxton, Attorney General of Texas, acquitted on Saturday in the historic first impeachment of a statewide official in Texas in over a century. And the reaction from progressives has been the expected mix of indignation over entrenched Republican power players choosing to protect one of their key standard bearers to really more of a shrug. We all knew this was really a Republican fight and that considering the established ethics of the parties involved and the outcome in which actual justice might be served was a long shot. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram boils down nicely what the Paxton acquittal says to Texas voters about how the Republican Party, its control over Texas firmly entrenched, measures its own power. That a small group of hot-headed political warriors can intimidate elected officials away from doing the right thing, and that a lack of courage from all but a scant few Republican members of the Senate paves the way for politics to prevail over what's right and what's wrong. The common employees of powerful Republicans who witness wrongdoing on the parts of their bosses face professional ruin should they speak up about it. That even law enforcement and prosecutors, amidst proud affirmations from Republicans that they back the blue, will be denigrated and steamrolled to protect the powerful. And that an individual office holder, even one with statewide responsibility like Paxton, has the power to direct state resources, money, and authority to the benefit of a personal friend. Again, though, at a certain level, none of that is especially surprising. So, at this point, the interesting part for progressives is watching the Texas Republican Party square off against itself. Ryan Autulo and Tony Plohetsky at the Austin American Statesman write that the lines marking the sides of this intensifying Texas GOP civil war can roughly be drawn between the House and the Senate. Immediately after the verdict on Saturday, presiding Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick dropped the facade of decorum he'd held over the last couple of weeks to throw bombs at House Republicans for bringing the impeachment charges to begin with, calling it a rust process that did not justify the cost in taxpayer money. On the other side, House Speaker Dade Phelan responded that those comments betray Patrick's bias in the matter and that the outcome was orchestrated from the start. Patrick's VTAC at the Texas Tribune says Dan Patrick has called for a state constitutional amendment reforming the impeachment process, including allowing an impeached official to stay on the state's payroll while awaiting trial. Ken Paxton had been suspended without pay throughout all this since early summer. And Patrick is calling for a full audit of House spending on the impeachment. Patrick versus Phelan is not a new conflict at the Capitol, but it has clearly escalated. J. David Goodman at the New York Times writes that we're entering a new stage of what has been a steady effort by the fringiest MAGA Republicans to push out more moderate business-oriented old guard GOP types who have vexed their more radical counterparts' legislative moves for years, and that the acquittal of Ken Paxton suggests that the MAGA wing has the upper hand for now. Paxton attorney Tony Busby summed this up nicely in his closing remarks, saying, quote, the Bush era in Texas ends today, unquote. So what's next for Texas? Progressives are now left to hope that the hostility rending the two chambers of the legislature and the two halves of the party that controls them both might play to the benefit of millions of Texas kids who attend public schools. But again, that hope is tempered by the reality of Republican control and priorities, which are unlikely to champion everyday Texas families in the upcoming special session on school vouchers. 
Javanka Palacios at Reform Austin writes that the word in the Capitol hallway is that Governor Greg Abbott is firmly dug in on vouchers, indicating that cutting a deal might be the only way to get public funding for independent school districts. In the House, it's believed that Representatives Brad Buckley of Killeen and Greg Bonin of Friendswood, the chairs of the House Public Education Committee and House Committee on Appropriations, have been working on a deal on school funding, while of the 24 House Republicans who have dug in against vouchers, two have shown signs of wavering, under the same kind of pressure that all but two GOP senators caved under in the Paxton impeachment vote. And what's next for Ken Paxson himself? Well, he gets his job back and is probably feeling pretty satisfied right about now. He should enjoy that because it's not going to last. Uriel J. Garcia at the Texas Tribune writes that while Paxton's pals in the Senate may have given him a pass, no such favors should be expected of federal investigators who certainly have been watching all of this develop and have all the same whistleblower allegations and facts at hand for potential federal charges. And still floating around out there, those indictments that Paxson has been able to hold off for eight years. Eight years. Now coming home to Ruth, Sandra Guerra Thompson, a law professor at the University of Houston Law Center, says Paxton's victory in the impeachment trial not only means his state criminal case on securities fraud will continue on its present trajectory, but that prosecutors are less likely to bargain on a plea deal in light of his impeachment acquittal. So while the Ken Paxton impeachment chapter comes to a close, the broader Ken Paxton legal soap opera is clearly far from over. On to other stuff, and speaking of Texas school kids and the looming voucher fight, Wayne Carter at NBC DFW Channel 5 says Dallas Independent School District Superintendent Stephanie Elizaldi expects her district, including the 21 Dallas ISD schools that received D's and F's on last year's state evaluations, to be denied the better ratings they deserve due to improvements made since last year on upcoming state scores due to changes in the way those scores are calculated. As we mentioned on Friday, Dallas has joined a collection of smaller Texas school districts and a lawsuit against the state Texas Education Agency over those changes. Elizaldi believes that artificially depressing school rating scores is intentional on the part of the state, as failing public schools are the focal point of school voucher advocates who claim to want to allow families to use vouchers to get their kids out of those schools and into private schools, ignoring, of course, the fact that proposed voucher amounts won't cover private school tuition in most cases and the fact that private schools are not under the same quality control and equity standards that apply to public schools. Fort Worth ISD is considering joining the lawsuit as well. Meanwhile, Laura Santhanum at PBS writes that hundreds of thousands of Texas kids have lost Medicaid coverage in recent months. As the pandemic-era pause on Medicaid redeterminations ended this last April, 7 in 10 of those who have lost their coverage have done so over procedural factors such as missed deadlines, paperwork being lost in the mail, or backlogged state agencies. Even before all of this, Texas already had the nation's highest rate of uninsured people at 16.6% of our population which hasn't stopped us from leading the way nationally in disenrolling Medicaid recipients, whopping 69% of them since April. About 900,000 Texans kicked to the curb. The most nationwide and about 80% of those Texans losing Medicare coverage are children. The federal agency that runs Medicare and Medicaid has taken notice, ordering states to fix whatever systemic bugs are causing this mass disenrollment and report a timeline for corrections or face legal consequences for being out of compliance with federal law. We hope you enjoyed the much more seasonable weather over the weekend over most of Texas, and we hate to bum you out on a Monday morning, but as much as we'd like to, we can't dismiss the fact that Texas remains in a state of climate emergency. 
Aaron Douglas and Yuriko Schumacher at the Texas Tribune had the numbers on the hellish summer we've apparently emerged from. And they say it was the second hottest on record for Texas, only ranking behind the legendary summer of 2011. Average temperature 85.3 degrees between June and the end of August, just behind 2011's 86.8 degrees. Low rainfall pushing Texas into the state of drought that persists today. El Paso and Austin, both among the Texas cities that went more than 40 days without a single day that didn't reach 100 degrees. 79 of the state's 254 counties had their individual hottest summers on record. Average water temperature in the Gulf of Mexico hit the hottest ever recorded in July. And August of 2023 was the second hottest overall month ever recorded in Texas. 97 Texan deaths directly attributed to hyperthermia. All of this also had an impact on our air quality. Smog pollution surged across Texas this summer as high temperatures accelerated reactions between vehicle and industrial pollution to form ozone. Texas air monitors have recorded 61 days when ozone concentrations were high enough somewhere in the state to be considered unhealthy. And the wildfires. Just in August, the Texas A&M Forest Service responded to more than 500 wildfires in Texas, more than triple the typical number of fires for the month. And dry conditions persist even now, as does high fire danger in many parts of the state right into the fall and winter. State climatologist John Nielsen Gammon says this summer's high temperatures were particularly driven by climate change, an unusually warm Gulf of Mexico, and the weather patterns that led to dry conditions in July and August. Finally this morning, and really on the same topic, interesting tidbits to be gleaned from a discussion between reporter Shelley Womack at KTAB News in Abilene and Lauren Decker, Executive Vice President of Rolling Plains Cotton Growers Incorporated, a political group focused on advocacy for Texas cotton farmers. Decker laments the hot, dry, and windy conditions that have led to difficulty and poor crop yield for Texas cotton growers for the last two seasons now, but appears to hold out hope that the weather will, quote, go back to normal unquote, and also indicates worry amongst cotton farmers in Texas that Republican plays over the debt ceiling that now threaten the government shutdown are delaying a new farm bill, with last year's expiring at the end of September. Decker says that while Texas farmers, by and large Republican voters and donors, would love to be able to take less from the government, they find themselves in a position of desperate need of taxpayer-funded financial support, right at a moment when the leaders they helped elect are jeopardizing that help. I'm from Cotton Country out in Lubbock myself, and here at Progress Texas, we salute the hard and important work that our Texas farmers do. And we hope they'll begin to look past the wedge issues that have now led them to multiple decades of voting against their own interests. Interesting read in the show notes. And that's the Progress Texas Daily Dispatch for this Friday, September 18th, 2023. Links to all these original stories can be found in our show notes. Thanks to your support, our podcasts are now within the top 5% for listenership in the entire world. Please consider helping us continue our important work by joining our ongoing membership drive at progresstexas.org. I'm Chris Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we will see you again tomorrow morning.